We are in Amos chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, Bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks, and you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal, and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened, and proclaim free will offerings, publish them. For so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities, and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declare the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locust devoured, and you did not return to me, declare the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp Go up into your nostrils, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you, and when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Welcome. For those of you who are new, and you're like, what in the world is that guy going to preach from from Amos? You will see. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would minister to each person individually here what they need to hear, not necessarily what is coming out of your servant's mouth. And I pray that whatever comes out represents you well, Lord, that I am not misrepresenting you and approach your pulpit humbly. And I ask, God, that you would bless each person here touching their lives exactly where they are in need. Um, if they're experiencing pain, discomfort, a lack of peace, or whatever it may be, that you would show them, Lord, that you love them and that you desire to make them whole. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Can you believe it? Two whole chapters in two weeks. It's just incredible. I'll probably break that in a couple of weeks, but here we are, all of chapter four. So far, we've noticed just what a brilliant writer and orator Amos was, even though he was just a shepherd, a dresser of sycamore figs, and he wasn't this rabbi, he wasn't this scholar. But something that was obvious about him was that he was called to be a prophet. And in looking at previous chapters, we've noticed these various creative patterns Amos utilized to reach out to his people, whether it be speaking or writing. And chapter 3 is no different. In chapter 3, there's this phrase that just kind of pops out. It's repeated over and over again. And it's this, Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Now in Amos chapter 3, the Lord roared from Zion, but he had not yet consumed, meaning that there was this window of opportunity for Israel to repent. And the same thing is happening here with this phrase, Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. What's happening here is that the window is closing and the Lord is letting them know that it wasn't him who was impatient. It was Israel who did not return even though generation upon generation upon generation had opportunity to do so. And it's coming to that point, that threshold where repentance will be too late because the window will be shut and the judgment will be coming. So God called them to repentance, gave them another opportunity to repent of their ways, to prepare to meet their God, as it says in verse 12 of Amos chapter 4. Now, that doesn't mean that they would meet God in their death. They had the opportunity to meet God while they were living, just like you and I have opportunity to meet God right now. It's not something you have to wait for after you face death. Experiencing God happens now. And the same message given to Israel in 8th century BC to the Israelites is the same message that God has for us today. For us to return to Him. For us to return to Him. To prepare to meet our God. See, God has been extremely patient with us, speaking to us about how we live our lives. So the question is, how are you living? Are your relationships with God right? Are your relationships with other people, which is the definition of justice, right? How is morality being fleshed out in your life? How are you doing as a husband, as a wife, as a son, a wife, mother, daughter? How are you doing at living in your current state of life, whether you are unemployed, underemployed, employed, single, married, whatever your state of life is right now? How are you doing? And whatever your current state of affairs, God continually calls us back to Him. To continually to return to Him and to prepare to meet Him. And let us not get into the point where this decision to return to God, to prepare to meet Him is just too late because the window has shut after God's patience has just been exhausted. And this isn't just towards us personally, but how are we doing returning to God, preparing to meet Him as a church family or as a nation? And yes, God speaks to us individually, but He was speaking to the entire nation of Israel just as He was speaking to all six surrounding Gentile nations of Israel, which were pagan. They were held accountable for their actions as well because God is a God of justice. 
So let's dive into chapter 4 this morning, and let's just start out with the first three verses where Amos addressed these women who weren't very righteous in their living. Now these women were extremely wealthy, they were powerful, they were influential in the 8th century BC, and those aren't the things that they were judged for. Amos had this word for these women because they were unrighteous. Now let's look at these prophetic words of Amos to these women. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. Excuse me? Did Amos just call these women cows? Yes. Now, who says the Bible's boring? I mean, this is awesome. Who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks, and you shall go through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. Now back to this cows of Bashan. What is that all about? Well, those of you who don't believe God is sarcastic, here it is. Here it is. Perhaps the uh, female aristocrats at this time wouldn't have appreciated this, but let's keep in mind the way that we interpret calling a woman a cow today is different than calling a woman a cow back then in 8th century BC. It's different, okay? Now, how do we know this? Well, let's look at Song of Songs chapter 4 and just a warning, this is a PG-13 part of the Bible, okay? Song of Songs, starting in chapter 4, you'll notice that the language of love describes that of animals. It's not how we write love letters to our loved ones today, unless like you're breaking up or something. But back then, it's like terms of endearment. I mean, this is how you kind of get the love in the air, right? So, Song of Songs, chapter 4. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. What? My eyes are what? Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. I get it, right? I mean, wavy, long, beautiful. And these are like black goats, right? So there's like beautiful black hair. You know, I, I get it. I get it. But come on, dude. Flock of goats. Like, come on, dude. See, back then, poetic, romantic. For us, flock of goats? Are you serious? Dude, just my hair's beautiful, all right? That's it. Flock of goats. You know, goats and hair, meat, not a good thing to combine, right? That's not. You don't do that. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. Pearly whites. That's, that's it. Right? Shorn youth, oh, Washington. No, no. Pearly whites. That's it. Now, women, do any of you get shivers hearing these words? Like, like, do any of you have like these warm fuzzies in your heart? Like, oh man, how come my husband never tells me that I have sh shorn youths out of my mouth? Like, okay. why do you get weak in the knees? Like, you just, oh. Here's one for you, women. Your cheeks are like halves of pomegranate behind your veil. You'd be like, 
I'm going to pummel your granite, pomegranate. Like, come on, shoot. So it wasn't just animals that used fruit, buildings. Solomon just kind of used stuff that was around us. Get this one. This one's awesome. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. I mean, I mean, who's this woman? She's like linebacker for the Raiders. I mean, like, look at this. A thousand shields. Like, like, come on. Now, of course, we're joking, right? Solomon's picture of women, it's beautiful. And hopefully, when we get to studying this in the future, I'll be able to explain all the beauty behind Solomon's language. But you kind of get it that we don't use that kind of language nowadays anymore, right? Like back then, culturally applicable. Today, you don't call women cows. You don't call them sheep or flocks of goats. Like You don't do any of that. So the way Amos used this language was not insulting in his cultural context. It was sarcastically descriptive, but he wasn't insulting them the way that it's received today. And you notice that Amos doesn't just call them cows. He addresses them as cows of Bashan. Now to help understand this a little bit more, we got to kind of modernize it for our context. And let's think of Kobe beef. Kobe beef. Good stuff. You've never had it in America. That's all a fluke, okay? You have to go to Japan for this stuff. Sorry to burst your bubble. These cows are not just given water. They're given beer. These cows are massaged daily with sake, you know, rice wine. Their caretakers are out there just kind of massaging them because they want to get the marbling all right. They're massaging them. These cows listen to classical music every day help them relax, right, to help them feed, you know, get bigger. So you get a picture that these cows are living like nobility in opulence, in indulgence. Another thing about these cows, they're highly exclusive. They have to come from a specific lineage. They have to be born and raised in this particular prefecture in Japan, only fed within the food from within that prefecture, very exclusive, very segregated from any other type of cattle. There's no mixing. That's what Amos was sarcastically getting across as the cows of Bashan were like Kobe beef cattle. right? And, and Amos was pointing out that they had this indulgent, opulent lifestyle, totally separated from anyone else, segregated, not a part of anything, without a care in the world, because everything was taken care of for them. And so they didn't have to lift a finger. And even though the poor weren't too far away from them, just neighborhoods away, they would just relax there, graze, hang out. And to make matters even worse, it wasn't that they were just hanging out and doing their own thing. This is what Amos writes in verse 1. tells us that they oppressed the poor. They crushed the needy. And they had this unhealthy sense of self-indulgence. Bring that we may drink. Just partying. Just enjoying their life while the poor and those in need remain hungry, remain naked. And they're just kind of up in the hills, just kind of doing their own thing. And Amos pointed out that these women were like Kobe beef, cows of Bashan. Not a care in the world as they enjoyed their life up in their neighborhoods with plenty to eat, being waited on hand and foot while oppressing the poor and crushing the needy. Now why did Amos point out these women? 
because he recognized the power and the influence of women. Husbands know this, how influential and powerful women are. Corporate America knows this, right? They can dictate entire industries. How else do you explain the explosion of the minivan? <laughs> Seriously. Seriously. I mean, guys, we can be honest, right? If you have a minivan, it wasn't your idea. <laughs> it wasn't your idea. And if you say it was, you are lying. You're lying. And maybe for some of you, it was your idea. You are in a very small minority. But you look at advertisements, and you look at how much corporations market and advertise their products and services toward women, because corporations know where the influence and the power lie. Now, why are these women pointed out? Because of their power and their influence, they will be held accountable to how their influence and power are exercised. They will be held accountable for oppressing the poor and crushing the needy. They will be held accountable for how they live, their relationship with God, their relationship with other people. Now let's take a look at verse 2. God swears. See how exciting the Bible is? Amos calling people cows, God swearing. I mean, this is awesome stuff. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks, and you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. God swore upon his own character, his own holiness, that enough is enough. That's it. Judgment. Judgment was coming. You can't go through life thinking justice isn't a top priority for God. Oppressing the poor, crushing the needy, indulging in self-centered lives, we cannot get away with that forever. He's not going to stand for that forever. And the prophecy of Amos came true. They were taken away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. Do you see how detailed this prophecy is? Taken away with fish hooks. And that's exactly what happened when the Assyrians conquered Israel and exiled these captives hundreds of miles from Israel, naked and strung together like fish, just with fish hooks from the bottom of their lips. They were all strung together out into exile. So these people, these women, used to jewelry hanging out from them, now hooked by a fish hook, captured like a fish. And I see a lot of similarities between 8th century B.C. and our nation today. I see a lot of similarities between those in Amos' day and people in our society today. A culture of greed, a culture of self-indulgence, gluttony, insatiable materialism, consumerism, where the idols have become money and possessions. How many generations have lived like this in our nation? How many? How many in our nation have oppressed the poor and crushed the needy for our material benefit, just to become wealthier? God has been very patient with us. And if we don't repent, there will come a time when enough 
is enough. And judgment will be coming because he is a just God. What about the men? How come they're not mentioned? What about their husbands? They'll be held accountable too. It's a given. No one is exempt from God's judgment against injustice. I think this is why. I couldn't find it anywhere, but I think this is why he mentions the women. I think it's because they're indirectly influencing their husbands. So he's kind of mentioning those in the background. Because it's obvious, like those that are in the front kind of doing their injustice up front directly, you're going to pay. But it's not just those that are doing it up front and directly doing it. It's those behind the scenes too. Those that are indirectly influencing those who are oppressing the needy and crushing the needy, oppressing the poor. They're held accountable too. Verse 4, come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. See, the sarcasm just continues. Only this time it's not about cows, it's about religion. Right? Bethel, Gilgal, Dan, these were all places set up for idol worship. And even though they had the prophets and the scriptures, they did not follow God and they created their own religion, one that had religious elements to it and had some similarities and they were very sincere and genuine about their religion, but it didn't change the fact that it was false. In their idol worship, it had an extremely religious, showy appearance to it. Right? Sacrifices, tithes, offerings. But their hearts were so far from God. Same thing that's happening today. People think that this loosey-goosey view of God and His character and His Scripture, His instructions, that those are all things that are new today. It's not. It's the same old stuff. It's the same stuff that was happening in 8th century B.C. It's the same stuff. People debating and arguing over topics such as what is sin and what isn't. Is hell real? Are these lifestyle choices just for back then? Our culture has changed today, so it's not for today. It's just back then. And all of these things are very good discussions for us to have if. If the ultimate goal is to attain truth. Not to win an argument. But for truth. But if the argument is over who is right, it's a waste of time. Because God is right. There's no debate about that. God is right. And once you attempt to redefine God or redefine His Word, you're creating your own religion. And you're making yourself to be God. Defining those things for yourself. And for the world. And you can do all the religious things that look like you're worshiping the true and living God, Jesus. But the fact is, you're not. You're worshiping and serving the God you want. And at the very base of that false worship is a rebellious heart to who God really is. And that's not acceptable to him. See, we can't redefine who God is, how He is to be honored. He already told us who He is and how He is to be honored. And it's not so much about religious actions that do that. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifices of fools.
for they do not know that they are doing evil. That's the thing. Are people drawing near to listen to God anymore? That's the real question, because I don't think so. I think people are off kind of just doing their own thing, determining for themselves what is good and what is evil, even though they don't even know what they are doing is evil, just as Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1 says. See, God has already determined what is good and what is evil. And to redefine that is idolatry. The Bible, the Word of God, has already given to us, and no one can factually claim that the Bible is false. There's no way. You can have your opinion that it's false and that it's not true, but the claim that the Bible is false is unsubstantiated factually. You cannot prove it factually. And if anyone asks how the Bible can be substantiated as truth, since it can't be substantiated as false, take a look here. The prophetic words of Amos, that Israel would be exiled into captivity by the Assyrians through fish hooks. That detailed, that's a pretty compelling truth, isn't it? And that's just one prophecy. The Bible has accurately foretold specific, detailed occurrences many years, sometimes centuries before they happen. Guess how many biblical prophecies have been fulfilled? Around 2,000. None with error. Are you kidding me? Now, how many biblical prophecies are there? There are about 2,500. So there are about 20% left that haven't unfolded, and the ones that have already happened, no errors. That's pretty good evidence that the Bible is true. About 2,000 pieces of evidence that the Bible is true. It's ridiculous to say that the Bible is not true. Even archaeologists, secular archaeologists, go back to the Bible to go look for things that they can't find anywhere else. They use it as a map to find their stuff. So it's absurd to think that the Bible is not true. For people to recreate God, recreate what's biblical, is nonsense. And here we have the Israelites going to Bethel and Gilgal, places they created for their own religious purposes, and Amos sarcastically telling them to transgress in Bethel and transgress in Gilgal because like they even care that they're doing evil. Just do whatever you want. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Even if they offered sacrifices at Bethel and Gilgal, the offerings weren't made in obedience to God. Even if they tithed every three days, which was actually more often than God instructed in the Torah, it just wouldn't matter because it was just done for religious show. Their hearts weren't seeking God. Verse 5, Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them. For so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. See, there was only one offering, the wave offering made on the day of Pentecost that included leaven. All the other offerings don't include leaven, which suggests Amos was telling them that, you know, your offerings, they're contaminated. Because your offerings weren't done out of obedient hearts. They were done as religious actions absent of an obedient heart for God. 
I think many people have a genuine heart to please and serve God. I really do. But I think the problem lies in how they go about it. See, God has already laid out in his word how we are to honor, please, love, and serve him. And we don't create that on our own. So even though they believed that their intentions were good, they were wrong. Where his instructions and his words have been twisted and manipulated to fit whatever they wanted it to fit or how they wanted it to fit or how a culture or society wanted it to fit. And there are a lot of people going to church. But some of those churches have decided to go their own way, not God's way. And if the church followed God's way, I'm confident our influence for the kingdom of God would be greater. But the influence of the church is waning. And it's because some have created their own way. And some have focused more on the religion, how things look on the outside, rather than their relationship with God. So we have a church that has lost its power and its influence on the world. See, the churches in Gilgal and the churches in Bethel, the churches in Dan, they were packed out. These were extremely religious people. They had no problem giving offerings, no problem with sacrifices, no problem with tithes. They were very religious, but just really little spiritual impact. How about our church? How about you personally? We have a fair number of people here. Why are you here? Why am I here? I mean, is it to appear religious? And are we playing church? Like this is just the kind of the Sunday thing that we do? Verse 6, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew. Your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locust devoured, Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword. I carried away your horses. I made the stench of your camp go into your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you. As when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me declares the Lord. Now, did you notice all the first-person singular verbs in these verses? Verse 6, I gave. Verse 7, I withheld, I send. Verse 9, I struck. Verse 10, I sent, I killed, I made. Verse 11, I overthrew. Now, some of you may read this and think, what a cruel God. What's going on with this guy? Now, before we attempt to define the character of God through these verses, let's look at something more basic, more foundational, and it's this. God is at work. It's pretty awesome. God is actively involved for the good of his children, even when we've been rebellious, we've been hurtful and spiteful towards God and towards other people, God is at work actively in our life. Isn't that incredible? 
Now, another thing we have to know is that God is sovereign, that he's in control, right? He rules, he reigns. Isaiah chapter 45, verses five through seven. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And you may also recall from Amos chapter 3, verse 6, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? No. Now some of us may have a misconception of God by taking it upon ourselves to define what we believe to be good and evil. Before we go there, let's think about the original sin. Because wasn't that the original sin of Adam and Eve? This was how the serpent deceived Eve. Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, this is the root to many of our problems. We've taken the place of God, wanting to be like God, knowing what is good and evil, when it is only God who knows what is good and evil. And so some of us may look at a disaster and instantly define it as good or evil. Most of the time, evil. But that is looking at a matter just really myopically. In the eyes of everlasting, knowing that God is good, that God is love, that God is in control, and having an understanding that we must have about God that He is love. That even what we perceive to be evil or bad, God is a redeemer. God is a restorer. Even though things may look disastrous, He is good. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Now this may be difficult for some to accept because there are just some atrocities out there in the world that just can't be understood by you and me. There are voluntary responses by people to do awful things such as sexually assaulting children or genocide or so many awful things that I can't explain to you why God is present in all of that madness of humanity but doesn't seem to be doing anything in that moment. I don't know. I just know that He's there though. And I know that He's working. And I know that He's good. And I know that His purposes have an eternal perspective that doesn't help me to explain the atrocities of the present i really can't explain god's sovereignty that why those things are happening and yet he's present and nothing's done seemingly during that time i don't know i just know this that god is too small if he is someone we can manipulate to our liking amen I just know that God is too small if someone can fit him into our limited logic. If he can be someone who can be molded by our will. Someone we can challenge and win. He's too small. Are we to submit to a God like that? Really? 
Are we to believe that God is only able to bring rain, but he can't bring drought? If God can be changed by us, that's a weak God. Right? Our God is not changed by us. He is who he is. How many people have tried to fit God to their liking, to suit their feelings, to suit what they believe to be good or evil? Is it God who defines what is good and evil? Or you? And in looking at things from an eternal perspective, not just what is temporary, there's this recurring phrase in verses 6 through 11 that is essential for us to understand. Yet you did not return to me. See, God is at work in your life, in our church, in our nation. And he intervenes, he intercedes, he leads his people to repentance, to live in reality for us to return to him. To prepare to meet our God. Return to Him before it's too late. And the challenges that we face, that the world faces, realize God is at work and is getting our attention. But will we recognize that so that we will return to Him? Or will we curse Him, turn to idols, pursue our own agendas, independent of Him, thinking that He was absent in the negative things of our life, while all the while He's working on helping us to recognize we need to return to Him. If we want any goodness in this world, we need Him. And after God has repeatedly intervened in our lives, and we just don't get it, will He declare to us just like He did with the 8th century B.C. Israel, yet you did not return to Me. God desires for us to return to Him, not because He's lonely or insecure or He's a control freak or He needs affirmation or He wants servants. It's none of that stuff. He desires us to return to Him because it is only through Him that our relationship with Him and our relationships with one another will be good and they will be right. That's why. How often do we want to control God? How often do we want to come before a holy God without repentance? How often do we want the benefits of a relationship with God without any boundaries, restrictions, or limits? You know, when you've wronged a loved one, in order for you to have a good and right relationship with them, don't you have to seek forgiveness for the reconciliation, for the restoration? Don't you have to do that? In a loving relationship, aren't there boundaries? Aren't there limits? Aren't there restrictions? So why do we treat God so disrespectfully extending forgiveness and boundaries with persons, but not with God? With Him, it's just free reign. With Him, we don't want these boundaries. We don't want limits. We don't want to go to Him to seek forgiveness for our sins. We don't want any of that stuff. Yet you do that with your friends. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Here's God's final call to repentance for his people. There will be a final call of repentance for each one of us. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Everyone will meet God at some point. When you die, if you haven't experienced the life with God right now in your life, 
When you die, you will meet him face to face. Are you prepared to meet him? And please don't bank on some time in the future because none of us knows how long we have to live. Are you prepared to meet him right now? Do you have a right relationship with him right now? And when you meet him, will you be meeting him as a friend or will you be meeting him as an enemy? As a friend, you will receive mercy, blessing, grace. As an enemy, you will receive judgment. You will receive justice. Now, God isn't threatening you to return to him. He is lovingly extending an invitation for you to live in reality. Right? Just like a burning fire, a guy urging you to come out of that fire or a sinking boat to come onto the life raft, like come on out. He's not threatening you. Right? Do it or I'm going to kill you. He's saying do it or you're going to die. And so God is just extending this loving invitation to live in a reality that without him, there is no love. There is no peace. There is no comfort. There is no healing. There is no hope. There is no joy without God. And that's the reality that he's inviting us to. And he wants to give you grace. That's why he sent his only son, Jesus, so that we can meet God as a friend. The difficulties you face in life aren't there because God hates you. He loves you. And the hope is that you return to him before it's too late. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for using your prophet Amos to give us these profound lessons. And I ask God that they would not just be merely information that we've learned about and that it wouldn't just be a temporary feeling that comes and goes, but that there is a permanent change in our life, a change that is drawing us closer to who you are, conforming us into your likeness. God, there are people here who are hurting and who need you. And despite our efforts as a church to extend that care and love to them, we're weak. And so even though we are desiring for them to hear your word and to be equipped by your word, to be uplifted and encouraged by it and also by the songs and the fellowship here and through the prayers, there are some deep-seated hurts and pain that even that doesn't seem to be reaching. Yet you, God, can. And so, Lord, I pray that you would touch their soul for healing and for wholeness, for comfort, for peace. I pray you would bless those who are in so need of your touch. In Jesus' name, amen.